and welcome to the LARB Radio Hour, brought to you by Reader Supported, LA Review of Books. I'm your host, Eric Newman, and I'm joined today by my co-host, Medea Ocher. Hi, Medea. Hi, Eric. So on today's show, we're speaking with Helen Oyeyemi about her new novel, Pieces, a kind of wild romp through identity, mystery, visibility, and relationships on a non-honeymoon honeymoon train ride. Um, But before we jump into those very weighty topics and what I know Medea and I thoroughly enjoyed this interview, we're going to kiki a little bit about the Drag Race season 13 finale. (laughs) I know. I should also say for viewers, just to give myself some credit where no credit is due, I had actually been trying to push Medea for years to watch Drag Race. And she recently, I mean, I wish she didn't have to get sick in order to binge all, seemingly all of the seasons across several continents. But she finally (laughs) did. And I think for, and I'm so glad that she did because I have to say the season 13 Drag Race US finale was perhaps the best Drag Race finale I have ever seen. So Dan, tell us, walk walk through your thoughts because for you, it's all still somewhat fresh. Oh my God. Okay, well, first of all, this is the only time that I will admit that I was wrong. Um, <laughs> and that you only ever have to I'm admit glad you're it, wrong, because Medea is never wrong. That, that's true. Um, I was wrong for a very long time, and I'm just so sorry that I was wrong for so long. <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, if other people are hesitating in terms of watching Drag Race, my hesitation was only that it seemed like there was so yeah, much of it that I sure. felt a little cowed, and I, I didn't know where to start. It turns out it's very easy to start. You just start. And I got sick. I binged all of, or most of the past seasons, got myself up to speed, started watching the current one. And listen, this finale, I was on the ground. I was underneath the ground. I was on top of, I was just, it was incredible. For listeners who haven't seen the show, how do you even describe it? I mean, it's It's, stunning. I I mean, there's just everything. We're going to not talk about Rosé, and I feel very bad for her because it was like she was clearly the lowest light in that. But she's still an amazing queen, like an amazing performer, like super talented. But I mean, for me, it was 100% all about Candy Muse, Gottmik, and above all, who did win, spoiler alert. And there's no universe in which like she didn't deserve that 1,000% was Simone. I mean, the Simone incredible, the Tim's dress, the like the the way that she completely transformed how I have ever even begun to think about Britney Spears' "Gimme Gimme," it was just I I mean iconic. As you had texted me, you were like jaw on the floor. I don't think I'm ready. I can't handle this. I can't handle it. I couldn't handle it. I mean, just so for people who haven't seen the show, so what happens is there's the finale. This one in particular started with a, a mm-hmm. ball, which means like three different looks from three different queens. Yes. And then there's a lip sync off where pairs of the queens battled each other, lip syncing to Britney Spears, which already, like, I'm dead. I will have to be resuscitated. Somebody will have to save me, but that's fine. Simone is just, I mean, she's stunning. She revealed this Tim's dress that's, it was, it it was a dress that was made out of deconstructed Timberlands. I mean... I just, I didn't know what to do with myself. It was good that I was alone because I was totally annihilated. And 
you know, I didn't want people to see me in such a weak state. It was state. also the, like the stagecraft of her looks. Like she, at one point she is yeah. carrying around, she's wearing an enormous, I can only describe it as like a Marie Antoinette dress. Like it's like a classic French. Made out of made bandanas. Out of bandanas. Yeah. Like a classic, um, you know, and that's what's so amazing about her as an artist is how she incorporates all of these references and makes it so absolutely hers. But she's wearing, audience, um, she's wearing a, it's not even a wig. It's like a structure. It, she's got an enormous wig that's made to look like the most ridiculous version of the wigs that you saw in Bridgerton. And it is literally as tall as she is. And she's walking around like the most elegant, regal queen that you have ever seen with this incredible structure on top of her head. And that was just one look. Like that's like, like the, you know, look. many of the queens in the show, they would strive their whole careers for just like one second of the look that like Simone and others were, I mean, got mixed like Hellraiser outfit. Oh, loved it. Incredible. Right. Um, but like yeah. just so thrilling. So, you know, I yeah. so enjoyed it. If viewers have not, or if our listeners have not watched it, it is 100% worth it. I almost want you to start at the beginning of Drag Race, though, because season 13 at this point, at least in the U.S., I know we're both huge fans of UK season two, but in the U.S., season 13 is like really a high watermark, like unreal. Yeah, and you kind of, I mean... I was already having watched the other seasons. I was already sort of stunned to the the artistic heights and sophistication. Incredible. Uh, combined with camp and humor mm -hmm. that the other queens had brought to the show. Yeah. Like I it was already had been sort of stunning and to me and um and delightful and surprising and so fun to watch because it it's true artistry. It really is. I mean, I really don't think that like anybody can deny that. Um and having then kind of worked my way to season 13, it was just brought to kind of to new heights just to be like totally sincere. It, it totally. really sort of stunned, it stunned me. It really stunned me what was possible in, in like in performance and in, in presentation, in the construction of these garments, in the construction of persona. It's just, it's in, so ugh, In it's transformation, it's really in, so good. in character, in yeah. everything. And the one thing I want to say before we close this, like, admittedly and self-indulgent segment out. Um, yeah, it's, it's a, a gush. gush. But the, uh, both Gottmik and Simone are LA-based queens. So the, yes. these are also, there's been years of people saying like, oh my God, uh, real drag queens, the best drag comes from New York. Like at, we all knew that was a lie. I mean, cause no, the best drag doesn't ever come from one place. That's, that's for real. But like to see two LA queens, like so totally dominate the final four and the finale was beautiful to see. They also got written up in the LA times, by the way, um, for our local listeners. They did. So... One thing, one quick thing I want to say just about Gottman, because we hadn't really talked about yeah. her, is the and one of the ways in which I have been recommending the show to people who haven't watched it is that Gottmik is like such an incredible example of the ways in which gender can be yes. pushed to to the limits of, of of both of either capacity that it's not even a spectrum. It's like a a whole sheet of colorful construction paper or something exactly. like I don't even know I don't it I don't quite know even how to how to verbalize um what he represents but so Gottmik is a trans mm -hmm. man who is a drag queen also and 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 watching that I thought was just so was also just so it was so incredible and such a 
inspirational totally. way, even though, you know, I'm a cis, I'm a cis woman and it's not, doesn't personally really apply for me, but it was, it Except was incredible. Gottmik does point to your point. Um, Gottmik does kind of gesture everyone to that place in which like, yes, like we might have our gender identities, but they're never, they're not fixed. They're not like, you know, like there's, yes, like I'm a cis man, you're a cis woman, we would identify that way. But our lived experience of gender moves between those like binary poles. And I think that Gottmik is a really radiant example of like how one can, you know, quote unquote, live their truth in a way that's totally authentic and explodes all those kind of distinctions. So just a hundred percent total love. Yeah. Agreed. All right. Well, anyway. <laughs> let's let's now get to um, weightier issues, um, but also still a fair amount of gushing in our interview with Helen Oyeyemi. Yeah. Let's do it. We are so, so happy to have Ellen Oyeyemi with us here today. She's here to talk about her new novel. It's called Pieces. Helen, welcome and congratulations on your new book. Hi, Madea. Thank you for having me. I'm looking forward to the conversation. It is so hard to give a quick summary of this book. So I think the easiest way to talk about it is a new couple taking a mysterious train ride and trying to both reconcile with their past, their own relationship and their relationship to others as kind of those relationships are revealed over the course of the novel. There's a mongoose involved. I feel like that's just a slight twist. Yeah, that's right, too. And that might also be a romance. No spoilers, (laughs) but... (laughs) So that gives you like a little bit of a sense of it's like the zaniness of your writing, which I really like. Zany is probably has like too much, that implies like a freneticness or craziness where there is like actually a real control. But your writing is, for lack of a better word, like really fun to read. Like it's kind of like a wild ride. So I guess I wanted to start with kind of asking you about influences. Because as I read this, especially in the beginning, I was like, oh, this feels like an Agatha Christie novel, right? A little Mm -hmm. bit less sinister, obviously, but like Mm -hmm. it has that kind of like death on the Nile, like who's Mm -hmm. related to who, also obviously in the train, Murder on the Orient Express. Mm -hmm. And then it also has that kind of the wackiness or the zaniness that I'm talking about in the real like quirkiness of these characters recalls for me films like Darjeeling Limited, for example, like that kind of like Wes Anderson. I've been seeing Wes Anderson comparisons and I'm just like, why Wes Anderson? I love Wes Anderson, but I actually didn't have him in mind. I was more thinking Jacques Rivette, like one of my favorite films is Mm. Selena Julie Go Boating, which I just adore and I watched it. Well, it's kind of my test film, like I'm watching it with a friend because it's such a long film, right? I think it's like three and a half hours. So the test is will my new friend make it all the way through the film? And then also, what will they say about it once we finish watching? That's kind of like the thing. Like, what did you think about Selena and Julie? And then they have to like say something and then I'm like, okay, we're friends. (laughs) It's sort of of like that. But um, that atmosphere, and especially, I mean, the way Selena and Julie begins with a character like dropping, I think it's a glove or a book. I've watched it so many times Mm. that I can never unpick like where that story actually begins between the two of them. And then there's this kind of pursuit, almost a courtship across Paris and all of these things happen. They manage, they step into each other's roles to deal with family members they don't want to talk to (laughs) and so on and so forth. And there's just this very playful, lighthearted 
but with quite serious underpinnings about what it means to be in a story and to make yourself subject to the rules of a story and whether you can, you know, at some point, at certain moments, take a left turn. For example, when they go into a house, so in Celine and Julie, they go into this house and there's this little girl who's being poisoned and they have to decide to like save the girl and get her out of this house, Mm. but without breaking any of the rules of the story that they're in. And how can you do that? How do you change the entire story whilst working within the story? And, you know, this is exactly my jam. Like I love all of this narrative stuff and all of this trying to get close to what stories are actually made of. And I feel like the best way to do that is to sort of creep up on the story and kind of you know, be jokey. <laughs> well, then, that's like, actually, I, <laughs> yeah, I actually, I want to talk to you about that. Like the presence, because this is true about your work in general, is like there is a strong element of humor, or I guess I would also say like a kind of bounciness. Like, so you're exploring things that are, we'll get to this later, because there's a line that you use very early in the book to describe a relationship, which I actually found incredibly profound. Like it is, you know, very few people I think come close to describing my experience of my own relationship in like a very honest and authentic way. And I felt that you captured it. But those things can so often be really heavy, right? Or we can go that kind of like standard literary fiction, you know, she was sitting alone drinking a cup of coffee and, (laughs) and waiting for him. You know, so can you talk a little bit about just like humor? Are you naturally just a funny person? Or do you find that humor gives you purchase on something in a novel or a freedom? There's a playfulness to your writing, and I'm just curious about how that developed. Thank you. Like, I feel like I'm not a serious person. I'm just thinking back to a conversation. I think maybe I was about 10, and my dad said to me, you're not a serious person, are you? And I was like, no. Is that okay? And he was like, yeah, I just had to work it out. It was, it was like one of those moments where he was like, this is not, and I think it's true. I just am fundamentally unserious in my approach, which I think it means a couple of things. It means that when I really love a writer, or I'm drawn to a writer. Usually they're the ones that make me laugh. Like I do have a couple of exceptions where, for example, if I'm reading a hand Kang novel, like I don't need to laugh. I just need the novel. But most mm. of the time I feel like I can't really trust a writer or bond with a writer or with a piece of work or with a film or anything, unless there's some sense of it not taking itself too seriously or some sense of it not being convinced that it's the truth in some way, just kind of like a sort of stance that's like, you don't have to believe me, which is also why I love K-drama, which is kind of like just anything and everything happens. And they're just kind of like, if you don't believe us, that's fine. (laughs) And And also the peaks and valleys between what is like heavy, what's light and what's like Mm -hmm. true or what's revealed also happens all the time in K-dramas. Exactly. And I... One of my favorite K-dramas ever is Goblin by Kim and Sook. And it's, I think it's just so on the borderline of like almost a little bit too much, a little bit too painful. But mm. then it kind of like has a twist that is, it's just funny. So for example, the, these spirits keep coming to the Goblin and they're the spirits of people who had been alive and had practically worked themselves to death. They just like died of overwork. And they wanted the goblin to send winning lottery numbers to their family members so their family members could be rich. And the goblin was like, okay, just stop bothering me. I'll send you the lottery numbers. But the people that he sent them to never received them because they were working so much that they didn't have enough time to sleep to collect the dreams. Like they didn't have REM sleep. And like, there's something about that. Like you laugh, but also, oh my gosh, your heart is like, exactly. There's a knife in it. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. I love that. So the rules of the book, it's interesting that you bring that up because I think that's probably one of the first things a reader notices is that the rules of the story are, 
at least for a reader, are sort of being worked out as you read and as you sort of move along. I think the first indication that the rules are a little bit not, let's say, the rules of necessarily our world is there's a pet mongoose. And then right when the two lovers get on the train, we should say it's Otto and Xavier, and they've exchanged vows in some capacity. They Otto's taken on Xavier's name. He's now Xavier Otto Shin. And so they get on the train and the first car that they get into, all the furniture is on the ceiling. And nothing is really made of that as if it's unusual or strange. And the book just sort of moves along and the two characters just move along. I think that they think it's strange. They do think it's strange, but they still want to go on the trip. Yeah. Or is that just maybe I'm so linked to Otto and Zoe? I think that Otto in particular was freaking out, but <laughs> but because Interesting. the is kind of like, let's go. And because Xavier is like, let's go, he goes along. I would agree with you that later at other points in the story, there's stuff that happens that like Otto underreacts to. But I think that there are reasons for that. And also I think that it's an understated Englishness in general, where it's just kind of like, okay, this is fine. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's so interesting that it's partly like a cultural, you perceive yeah. it as partly a cultural reaction. Whatever happens, you just have to sort of be quite smooth about it and also not make a fuss and not inconvenience other people with your overreaction. Like that's the main thing. And so I think that if Otto had been on his own, he would have been like freaking out all of the time. <laughs> oh, that's so interesting. Well, that's actually goes to my question, which is, That seems like one of the rules. Okay, so we have an Englishness that is carried over into the world of this book. When you were approaching the writing of this book, were there certain rules that you had in mind or did you also build it out as you were writing and sort of come to discover them as you were on the train and in the story? There was a lot. There was a lot that I was working out as I went along, which was fun. I had the main framework and the main rule of the train book which was, yes, in the sort of spirit of Agatha Christie and other like mysterious train stories, I wanted to have a sort of cast of characters gathered together to be like told what their crime was. But I didn't want the crime to be a sort of standard crime, like a murder. Like I thought it had to be an existential crime, like it had to be something and ideally something to do with relationships as well, because I felt like I wanted to link the train journey and especially the honeymoon train journey with a comparison to relationships that both of them had had in their past that they considered sort of stops on the way to this final perfect relationship that they were in. And I just thought, what if somebody that you broke up with all those years ago decides to protest and say, I'm not just a stop on your way to (laughs) to the one, like I am, I actually have existence and importance as well. And how would that manifest like their protest and how would that revenge work itself out? And I think possibly the most perfect revenge is to make someone doubt that they exist. And and then that's what happens like to everyone on the train, like at the agency of this mysterious character who refuses to be broken up with. So there was that, I definitely had that rule in place of like, they're all being gathered together. They're all at some point going to find out what their sin or their crime was. But for the rest, I think working out the links, but also working out in what way, I don't know, like how they could navigate this past so that they had and also not fall apart in the present. Like, I think it was time management, which kind of sounds brief. (laughs) It was the sort of way of trying to keep past, present and future to some extent discreet because at certain points it felt like they were all collapsing into each other. So structurally, I had to like keep an eye on that. And so I was working out ways around that. So we should say that part of the, the sort of the mystery that the narrative coalesces around 
on an existential level, but in the middle of the book on a more sort of seemingly literal level is that there's a character. So the train is run by a woman named Ava Kapoor, along with two other women that are sort of discovered a little bit later on. And there's a character who Ava Kapoor has never seen, but other people have seen. She's literally never seen him. Or has she? Like that was the other thing with Ava. Right. Talk about it a bit later. I was like, Ava, what are you doing? (laughs) That's yes. That is part of the sort of existential question that's at the center of the book. But okay, let's say she does not acknowledge having seen a certain person. who other people have seen, have met, have interacted with, (laughs) insist that he exists. And his name is, and correct me if I'm wrong in pronouncing this, but Premsel? Premsel. Premsel. And so he becomes a sort of, along with Ava and along with the other characters, a kind of gravitational center in terms of where the mystery of the book seems to reside, which is, who is this person? Does he exist? Does he not exist? And it sort of unravels from there. I would say. Does that feel like a fair characterization of how the story yes, it moves does. along? Definitely the, the mystery centers around Prem. Um, I think, especially as I was writing, it became less. I think at some point I realized that I wasn't going to figure out whether or not he actually exists. And so I became less interested in that as a question and more what he and Ava are doing to this group <laughs> and the ways, in fact, that they're actually attacking the group and separating them out. Like, So there's that segment where everyone has to talk about their individual encounters with Prem, which are also different and in fact often contradictory and like just don't really make any sense when you put them together as a whole. And there's something about what Ava and Prem are doing. It's like attacking from like two different sides, but just making people realize that they don't know what reality is (laughs) when they compare their realities to others, that just the jigsaw pieces just don't fit and then just sort of leaving them to work out how to continue to exist around that. It's a very serious tampering with a group dynamic, just like a horrible prank. (laughs) You are listening to the LARB Radio Hour, recorded remotely. We've been speaking with Helen Oyeyemi, author of Pieces. We'll return to that conversation in just a moment, but first, we have this week's book recommendation. We have Rachel Kushner on the line with us today. Rachel's latest book is a collection of essays. It's called The Hard Crowd, Essays two thousand, essays from 2000 to 2020. And Rachel is joining us to give us a book recommendation. Rachel, what book are you going to recommend? So I am going to recommend the autobiography of Chuck Berry. Chuck Berry wrote this book himself. Unlike many luminaries in the field of rock and roll, for instance, Bob Dylan or Keith Richards, who either, you know, in the case of Bob Dylan, there's a certain lore about the plagiarism, which I love that book, but apparently he didn't, you know, some of it's not true and he didn't write all of it. With Keith Richards, I believe that he had a ghostwriter who's even named on the book, The autobiography of Chuck Berry is fully and completely and totally written by Chuck Berry, who was, and to me still is, an American genius. You can really hear his voice in the book. I would say I'm particularly interested in Chuck Berry because I grew up with my parents playing his records. And also, my parents used to live in North St. Louis, uh, which was a particular world in the 1960s. And Chuck Berry 
lived around the corner from them and grew up in that area. Um, I spent every summer in St. Louis playing on the streets of North St. Louis. And the first fiction that I ever tried to write was kind of about that world, which centered on this street, Labadee Avenue, where Chuck Berry had actually grown up, which I learned reading this book. Um, his great-grandparents were, all four of them, slaves who lived through Reconstruction. So slaves who then experienced some version of freedom, which I find really incredible. His great-grandmother was a Native American from Oklahoma. So I guess she wasn't a slave, but the three others were. I wanted to share a couple tidbits from the book, if you don't mind. No, I think this is great. I was, please do, yeah. So Chuck Berry uh, did no physical exercise, as he emphasizes in the book, except for, quote unquote, keeping up his manhood. I hope y'all, you know, know what he means. His favorite vegetable is the candied yam. Uh, one section is about the, he, he went to prison twice in his life. He went very early. Um, I think that was somewhere in Missouri. And then later on, just for tax fraud or something, he did a short stint at a federal prison here in California, actually in Lompoc, which is near San Luis Obispo. And strangely, it's a place I have been because I went there to get my first fake ID, having heard that the DMV in Lompoc would accept a baptismal certificate instead of a birth certificate. So we were all getting these mail order baptismal certificates at the age of 16 and going to Lompoc to take the driver's test and get an ID. And that was actually how I was able to work in bars uh, starting as a freshman in college. In any case, as I said, I think that Chuck Berry is an American genius. He lets me be proud of what is special and distinct about the weird, terrible history of this country and also the genius that it has produced. And I recommend reading his autobiography. That is a fantastic recommendation. Rachel, will you tell us the title of the book again? And I don't think you have to tell us the author, but just the title. The Autobiography of Chuck Berry. Thank you so much, Rachel. We've been speaking with Rachel Kushner. Her latest book is called The Hard Crowd. You are listening to the LARB Radio Hour. We now return to our conversation with Helen Oyeyemi, author of Pieces. Yeah, I mean, in some ways, that's kind of like the Rashomon angle a little bit mm -hmm. to the novel, where it's like, because the point of that film, obviously, is that who actually can own or know truth, right? Mm -hmm. That, in fact, it's all perspectival um, mm -hmm. or based on, like, what you happen to see and how you're filtering it. But one of the things that I wanted to bring up along these lines, as I promised listeners, I would talk about this line that I really, really loved at the beginning of the book, to ask you a little bit about how you think of relationships, both in fiction and obviously because you're drawing from experiences, like what you think we learn about our relations to each other by reading their representation of fiction. This is describing Otto and Xavier. It's Otto's voice, but it's describing his relationship with Xavier. 
So he says, you run the romantic gauntlet for decades without knowing exactly who it is you're giving and taking such a battering in order to reach. You run the gauntlet without knowing whether the person whose favor you seek will even be there once you somehow put that path strewn with sensory confetti and emotional gore behind you. Like, I feel like I have never read a truer way of capture, except maybe in like um, Bart's like a lover's discourse, which of course my parents and my partner would say is like way over the tops to the extent that it's not real. It gets at, and I think this is illustrative of larger themes in the novel about like how when we meet someone else, we are both engaging with them in the present in ways that reflect, but also sometimes are an active rewriting of our past and a way of like scripting some kind of future. And I think that's where the confusion or the disjointedness kind of comes because those things we're always battling to like have them be determinative in some kind of good way. So can you just talk a little bit about not just Otto and Xavier's relationship, which I quite enjoyed as I was reading through it, but how that kind of push and pull and that like navigation of damage also helps to explain the complications of the relationships that they have with other people on this kind of like closed train that they're on. I think it's that passage, but also maybe my view in general is that the role of the the romantic in this world is really, really difficult. (laughs) It's just, it's one of just constantly being bruised, but constantly having to rely on faith. So like every interaction with the multiple beloveds that we have in our lives, like not not even just romantic beloveds, like it's it's all acting on faith that what you are able to perceive, what you're able to communicate is enough and actually is true. Because I feel like there's always so much information and like counter, there's so much that counters everything that we receive as good, <laughs> that then you sort of, you're you're constantly weighing it up, like, am I? delusional or like, or is this real like is this a, a true connection that I feel um and so just constantly pressing forward with that but also I'm trying to remember which Anita Bruckner novel it was that I read but there's a character who's writing a dissertation on um the romantics like the poets and mm-hmm. he says that the really difficult thing about romantics is that they're always like waging some enormous and mighty war to an audience of zero, like that, what, what are they trying to prove? Who are they trying to prove it to? That they're always like, and like with Quixote tilting at windmills, having these enormous stormy battles. Um, and it's all for some invisible ideal. And I kind of feel like what everyone goes through on that train is very similar. Like it's a very unwitnessed struggle. And a struggle to, wanting to be witnessed, right? Like that's also mm-hmm. part of the the push and pull is wanting, I mean, in a most literal sense, wanting to be visible. Right, um, but maybe it actually can't be. Like it's not, maybe right. it's not possible. And the only person that you have to, in order to be able to continue your faith, the only person that you have to convince is actually you. It's a very difficult, like it's very large scale and small and very tiny, small scale at the same time. That kind of attempt to keep a capacity to love alive. One of the aspects of the sort of, um, of the relationships at the center of this book is art. All of the people on this train are artists in some capacity, except for perhaps one. Um, But music plays a central role in the story, paintings, writing, ghost writing, 
publishing, and they keep coming up again and again. Um, and I was curious about how you thought of the the role of art within these kind of the push and pull of relationships as we've been talking about and and the sort of fight for visibility um, mm. and and witnessing. I'm not, I, I do feel that, like this is my my artsiest story so far and I'm not really sure like how all of that art got in there and maybe I was thinking it's it's all to do with the leaps of faith again and the way that you have to surrender to somebody else's sensibility and you actually have to surrender wholly, like you can't hold back at all, otherwise you're not going to get anything. Um, and I think that that's, that's the case with art. It's the case with relationships. It's the case with most, thing, with most things that most activities like of the soul and of the mind that are worth doing, like you just have to do all. <laughs> and especially with, well, with the theremin, I went to a theremin concert. I didn't know there was going to be a theremin in the book until I went to a theremin concert while I was like writing chapter two. And I didn't, I hadn't been warned that there was going to be a theremin player. So I just saw this lady and like she was making these gestures and there was music. And I thought, what am I? I, I couldn't understand what I was saying. But it was so moving and so beautiful. And then it also happened that she's she's like the best theremin player in the world. So it was kind of like not just my first theremin concert, but like an absolute virtuoso. And something I think about this really wonderful voice without an identifiable source was something that I wanted to like thread into the book like it's especially with this character Prem um much is made by some characters about how scary he is and like how because of his indeterminacy um he's sort of a threat but I also think that because of his indeterminacy he's quite wonderful like you just you just Nobody knows where he where he came from or how he arose, and yet he's there, and he is in himself a work of art in certain ways. So I was linking all of those things. It's interesting to talk about faith in regards to this novel because so much of the discourse, that particularly the second part of second half of the book, let's say, is around taking people on faith and believing them when they say there's something here where there's nothing here and how difficult it is for some of the characters in this book or maybe performatively difficult. It might not actually be difficult. It might just be, again, a performance of some kind, but to, to accept something on faith and say, well, I don't see it. And so it's not there. Can you talk a little bit about your, I mean, this might not have to be, um, you know, spiritual or godly or religious in any way, in a, any sense, but your relationship to faith, because I think faith can be a very difficult thing to practice. You know, I, like as Otto says in the book, I take it for granted that things are not okay. <laughs> and then I, and then I, I purchase a receipt. He says something very funny, but that I plan on things not being okay tomorrow too. Things are just not okay. <laughs> so, so faith is really hard. It's a very hard thing to practice. And, and I wonder about your relationship to it and how you practice it, maybe in relationships or in, you know, in any sort of capacity? Well, the thing is I was raised Catholic and so faith is something that for me it's, I haven't been able to stop practicing. <laughs> so it's not, it's not an active thing. It's almost an involuntary thing. And I, what I would, if I would try and like pinpoint what I mean by faith, it's what's captured in, the, do, do either of you know The Man Who Was Thursday? I love that book by G.K. Chesterton. It's all about a, it's sort of a, it's an, it's an existential mystery kind of <laughs> maybe what pieces was aiming for, but um, a band of men trying to stop the end of the world. 
from some mysterious source, like there's an anarchic source and they all like try to infiltrate this secret society. And then all of these things happen. And there's just some kind of assumption that at some point we will know the reason why like all of this stuff happens. Like we'll, we will even know why we were hurt. And one of the characters says, there's nothing like in this life that indicates that we can have access to that knowledge, but it's just a sort of, I don't know, assumption that we won't be left in the dark forever. <laughs> and I think that that is what I take from Catholic faith. It's kind of, um, it's more on the mysticism side of things where it's kind of like there are things beyond words. So nonverbal communication is very important for me in like all of my relationships, where it's like somebody can be saying something and, um, and this is bad because you should actually listen to people. But sometimes I'm just kind of like, you don't mean that. <laughs> and it, it helps when people are saying really mean things. <laughs> so, so there's that. But I do think that aspect of life that is outside of words, outside of um, maybe even the framework of the human intellect um, is where is where faith would come in. Well, that then for you, Helen, I mean, and I'm drawing on my own, I also raised Catholic, um, that kind of surrender is mm-hmm. is part of faith. Like the sense that at some point there is something larger, there is something that exceeds our grasp or understanding. Mm-hmm. And in some ways, I think your characters in very different ways struggle with that kind of surrender. Because there is a desire for, at the very least, knowability, right? So knowability, visibility, fixability, like that it is going to be this way. And they kind of all, I mean, well, I guess, what is your sense? Do you think that by the end, this is also a really hard interview to have because you don't want to reveal all of the Mm -hmm. like twists and turns, which are like what's so beautiful and makes the book such in addition to all these other things we're talking about, it's like a real thinker, but it is also just fundamentally a fun ride as we're on the train with them. I feel that your characters also struggle with whether such surrender is possible or desirable, even as maybe they also recognize that it is inevitable. I think that there is a real, it's a serious fear. I mean, like one of the, Prem accuses the 1980s babies of being afraid of intimacy, but I do feel like it's sort of what's what's not wrong, but it's it's a feature of my generation. Like we're just kind of like, why are we like this? But I know that I'm like that too. Um, relationships, especially in previous years, I've had a real. I hated the thought of becoming um, not even one with somebody. It's just I hate the thought of not being myself. It's as if like being part of a pair would mean that I wouldn't have agency or that something would be would be diminished in some way um and I'm not really sure like what if somebody said okay give me concrete examples of the ways that ways that people are diminished by relationships I wouldn't be able to say but it's just a sense of maybe not even contamination like I don't really know what it is but it's very um there's a sort of flinching at the thought of like merging with anyone else and it's the same with it's the same with what most of the characters are struggling with when they try and approach the fact that they can't know something they're like no but I have to know because it's not because if I don't know then I won't be I (laughs) like it's a sort of very stripping it's a it's stripping down of the perspective that you believe to be yours and then what is left after that it's it's like annihilation of some sort the sphere of annihilation I would say is probably one of the biggest fears that they exhibit the characters exhibit in this book and at the end, I would 
I mean, I can't say that the book explains everything, right? So it's you can't really even spoil it in some ways. But um, at the end, there's a struggle over visibility. There's like an almost literal, actual physical struggle over visibility. And one of the ways in which I was reading that, I was reading that within the context of the book. Um, but I, I also can help reading it in a political context, which is that there is that there's constantly a struggle of visibility uh, politically, right? Like in terms of representation, that in government, et cetera, things like that. There's a there's a struggle of visibility economically. There's a struggle of visibility for certain popul just certain for populations of people, not just certain people being erased out of your life, but certain people that you know, let's say the unhoused or that you just don't see. Right, that, or that people usually just don't see, and that felt like something that the book was bringing up. But I wanted to see how you thought about it. That was the political was the political reading of a book of this book, something that you had also been thinking about as as you were as you were writing it, and as this sort of slow visibility at the very end sort of takes place. I have to say, so in all my books, I'm very much a creature of my time and I just give into it. So it's more a case of, it's not, it's not making deliberate choices or trying to make a point or anything, but it's more um, not writing things out or not writing or excluding characters from the book because of a fear that it will then be seen as like being about this or about that. Um, it's just allowing everyone in the book to be an individual. Like I feel very strong, strongly about that. Like everyone in the book um, regardless of the sort of political vibration that might come from like assessing some of their characteristics. It's not that I ignore or exclude that, but I do want to look at them dead on as individuals, as personalities, um, with the things that they like and they hate and, <laughs> and all of that complete. And I mean, I, I feel like it's, you know, it's happening. It's, it's contemporary writing. We have, we have characters all kinds of characters represented increasingly. And um, I think the main thing is to do that casually and well. <laughs> I feel like that's my stance on it. That makes sense. Um, because to do it the other, like it, it can just become clumsy and um, making too much of a, and, and reductive if you go the other way, if you make too much of a point of who you are including and, and so on and so forth. Can we talk about without revealing what Medea was mentioning, this kind of indeterminacy at the end, you know, because this has come up in a number of reviews, obviously, where it's like, you know, it, it pulls together in a way that doesn't, what everybody wants in a mystery is resolution, right? So it was like, aha, it was, it was this person and the mask comes off and you realize who it was. Or suddenly you see the mask, who knows? <laughs> in, this, in this story, it's, that, that question gets a little complicated. Um, but how do you, as a writer, think about, I mean, every time you sit down to write something, you're bringing your readers on a journey, right? And you know that there's a fundamental, I hate to use this word, but contract <laughs> between you and the reader, which is expectations and then whatever you're going to do with them. I guess to use, uh, to borrow a terrible phrase, can you talk to us about how you have a sense of an ending? Ah. <laughs> oh, very nicely done. I don't know if my answer can be as good as the question, but, <laughs> but I will give it a go. I think that I feel in some way exempt from all of that. I don't really know why, like I don't, I don't know why I think that I have that. <laughs> I have that superpower, but I'm just kind of like, no. And maybe it's because like earlier in the book, I feel like I've tested the reader and if they're still putting up with this, then I don't have to 
<laughs> I'm like, I don't have to deliver on anything. That's fine. If you're still here, then this is just what's happening. Um, because that that's, and that this is also the glory of fiction. Like it's so made up and you can, you can ma- make the absolute most of telling a story that is made up and just go until you don't have anything left. And I think that that is my approach. Like I, I, that's why I don't have endings. Also, I don't believe the stories end anyway. So I just kind of conclude when I have run out and I just have got nothing left and I feel like the character's alive and well and they're going to manage on their own and I can just close the book and go into another story. Um, so it's very, and I, I don't know. I, I've had a lot of doubts and partly my previous book, Gingerbread, was about that, just not knowing if there is a place in the world for what I do, like actually, <laughs> and, and how and, and how that is valued and how that is received. Um, but I think I worked out all of that stuff. Gingerbread was like my therapy, like my, my artist therapy. Um, and then I meant that I could come to pieces with confidence and be like, okay, what I'm doing is deconstructing a story about a story about a story and um, let's just keep on peeling until we come to like the end of it. Helen, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much. Both of you were lovely and I enjoyed our talk. It got deeper than I anticipated. I liked that. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, good. That's what we aim for. We've been speaking with Helen Oyeyemi, author of Pieces. Thanks for listening to the LARB Radio Hour. Subscribe to our show on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Spotify, or wherever else you get your podcasts. If you like the show, please rate us on Apple Podcasts. That will help us get the word out, and we'd love to hear from you. The producers of the LARB Radio Hour are Medea Ocher, Kate Wolf, and Eric Newman. The executive producer is Alan Minsky. Our sound engineer is William Broughton. Editorial production by Jake Levins. Our intro music was written and performed by Imogen Teasley-Vlotten. The publisher and editor-in-chief of the LA Review of Books is Tom Lutz.